great to be back here at uh, Community Bible Church. Thank you for your welcome. Um, and I think it is true. Uh, one of the core strengths of this church is its welcome and its hospitality. And my family and I always feel that when we come visit. I was so excited to hear about what the Catalyst team is doing. I don't know about you, but as Rachel was going through that list of slides, um, there was something in my heart, at least, that just began to beat a little faster. Um, this church has so many wonderful strengths, and, right, and they're the right strengths. Uh, to be Christ-centered, to be Bible-driven, uh, to be open to what the Holy Spirit is doing, to care about mission and evangelism. And when I hear of any group of Christians who think, what are the strengths that God has given us, and then how do we reach out more deeply and more broadly? Um, my heart gets more excited, in part because that's what I'm always trying to do with InterVarsity Fellowships. Um, but I think God's heart is excited as well, because the entire story of Scripture, if you wanted to read it that way, is the story of God beginning with one couple and choosing in increasingly great waves to reach out to the very ends of the earth. So it starts with one family, which begins to be one people, into one nation, um, into a movement of people that will one day incorporate every tribe, nation, language, and tongue, every age, every socioeconomic background, and that whenever a church continues to align itself around that, I think, one, you begin to understand God's presence and God's power in a new way. Because you're doing what God is doing, you're participating in his purposes, you're getting caught up in it, and he's saying, look what I'm doing, come along with me. I think you begin to experience the Holy Spirit in a different way, because this is what the Holy Spirit has always been pressing the church and the people of God to do. Reach out, tell somebody about Jesus, I will empower you, I will give you the words, and I will give you the credibility when it happens. And so you begin to experience the Holy Spirit in a different way. I think you see Jesus more deeply. Right? Because the challenge of Jesus throughout the Gospels is that he always offended the people who already knew what God was like. Right? The big offense of Jesus was that people encountered him, the people who knew God, who understood his laws, who tried to live appropriately, and he kept saying, you, don't be you have not yet begun to understand how far I want to go. Everything that was going to hold us back, I'm going to finish and complete so that nothing will prevent you from reaching out to the very ends of the earth. And people couldn't understand that, but the more and more you press yourselves into that, I think Jesus will become even clearer and more real because we'll encounter even more of the sin of the world and understand the incredible need for forgiveness. Right? We'll understand its brokenness and understand its need for healing. And I think as God presses you all forward, um, Rachel, I think, was very clear. There are going to be some things that we're going to have to let go of in order to embrace what God is doing um, you begin to understand a little bit more of what it means, I think, when Paul says, let your attitude be that like, like that of Christ Jesus, right? Uh, who did not consider equality with God's ingress, but gave up everything and took on the form of a servant and became obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. And you may feel, I suspect, at some point in this process, and I have no idea where you're going, but I'm just so excited by the idea of it, um, that the beautiful thing is, right, the story never ends at the cross but that God then brings us into resurrection. And so I don't know about you, but when I heard uh, what Rachel was talking about and what the Catalyst team is doing, what you as a church have committed to become, I just got really excited. And it was one of actually the Catalyst team's suggestion um, that if we're going to do this, then actually listening carefully to what the Holy Spirit may do among us is actually an important part of that process. And so uh, Dick wrote me um, two weeks ago, and I didn't respond very promptly because I was out of town. He said, you know, 
we're in the Proverbs by the lectionary, but um, would you consider uh, speaking on the Holy Spirit? And um, as I was wrestling with the Proverbs text, and it's a great text, all of a sudden I thought, you know, the Holy Spirit makes a lot of sense. Because I don't know about you, but um, frankly, the Holy Spirit makes me a little uncomfortable. Um, I grew up at one of those churches where uh, we worship really a trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Scripture because the Spirit seemed <laughs> right, a little too weird and a little too uncomfortable, unexpected. Um, I grew up at like a church that loved planning, and the Holy Spirit, while I believe he empowers planning, right? I do a lot of planning in my job. Um, his propensity to break in and change everything at the last minute when somebody gets a word or a bit, like that was just confusing to us. And all the weird manifestations of the Spirit just frankly creeped me out. <laughs> um, and I think growing up um, and much into even uh, my work with university, the Holy Spirit was really the most unknown member of the Trinity. Right? I mean, I could read the Old and New Testaments very easily and learn a lot about what God the Father has been doing. Obviously, Jesus is easy. And the Holy Spirit just kind of hovered in the background in a spooky sort of way. Um, and I usually left the Holy Spirit to my, frankly, my weird, charismatic Pentecostal friends. Now, I have those in university. They're, always, they're all around. But I didn't, and I still haven't had any of those kind of weird spiritual experiences. Right? Like, when people are praying, like, I had this vision while I was praying. That never happens to me. Like, I pray, people like, let's just be quiet and listen for God. It's like black, white noise in my head. The only time I've ever had a vision while I was praying, I was praying, it was late at night, and I had this vision, I was swooping over Disney World, and I saw the Epcot Center. And I heard myself actually pray, Lord, bless Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. And then I woke up and realized that wasn't a Holy Spirit vision, that was a clear sign from God, just go to sleep, this prayer's not working. Um, people get like words of wisdom, like, you know, they're like, I don't know why, but I just, you know... I feel like God gave me this word, and they'll, they'll, they'll give you a word, and then some, suddenly somebody will burst into tears in the crowd. Oh, that's exactly what I needed to hear. Never happens to me. <laughs> Never happens to me. At most, I can make people chuckle. Um, prophetic kind of things, like I have friends who really feel like God's given them something, or they've dreamed something, and it happens that way. Never happens. I just have anxiety nightmares. Um, usually around things where I've forgotten to do something and now there's a crisis. So every fall before a major retreat, I have dreams that we drive up to the retreat center with 150 students and I didn't turn in the contract so they've already assigned the retreat center somewhere else. I have this every year. But the reality, right, is the Holy Spirit is God. If you believe the creeds, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Nicene Creed says, the Lord and the giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by his prophets. And I sometimes think uh, it's easy for us to get spooked by the Holy Spirit because we refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. Right? And the images we have of the Holy Spirit tend to reduce him from being a person of the Trinity to like um, a battery. Right? Like, I just need the Holy Spirit's power. Like, I'm holding the energizer battery of the Holy Spirit in one hand, and now I can do everything. Um, sometimes I think we think of the Holy Spirit not just as a battery, but more like Santa Claus. He gives gifts. He knows if you've been naughty or nice. Um, we even refer to the Holy Spirit. We avoid the personal pronoun because we don't know what to call it. I think, in part, the Holy Spirit... Um, this happens because the Holy Spirit is actually somewhat shy and retiring. 
for all that. The Holy Spirit brings great acts of power. Because if you read the scriptures, part of what the Holy Spirit is always doing is focusing attention back on the Father and the Son. Glorifying the Father and the Son. And so one of the best ways, I think, to look at how, who the Holy Spirit is and what he's about, his agenda, is to look at how he acts in the lives of the people that he fills. And that's why I wanted to look at Stephen. And I'm hoping that this will be um, part of what Rachel was hoping uh, and the, the Catalyst team was if we want to be open to what the Holy Spirit's doing, we need to pay attention to what the Holy Spirit does and how we get on board. And so uh, quickly, we're going to look at the life of Stephen. And the first thing that Stephen's life reveals about the Holy Spirit is that he brings unity to the church in his role as counselor and advocate. Right? In chapter 6, in the beginning, verses 1 and 2 of Acts, it says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows, widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, um, Hellenistic Jews were those Jews who lived outside of Palestine. They had grown up in the largely Greco-Roman culture of the time. They spoke uh, Greek much more fluently than they spoke Aramaic. Um, they were considered foreigners in many ways when they returned to Jerusalem, back to their land of origin, which may have been a generation or two out. The Grecian Jews, by and large, would have been particularly the older Jews from the cities of the Roman Empire coming back because they wanted to die in Jerusalem. Right? It was a sense of, I want to be home when I die. I want to die among my people with my faith. And so when, as the church began to grow, it began to experience tension because there was this group of very cosmopolitan, urbane, but poor older people who spoke largely Greek in the congregation, and the far larger group of Hebraic-speaking Jews, those who spoke uh, Aramaic, who had family and friends in the uh, community, who probably were a little bit more prosperous at the time. And there arose some division because one group which had the power and had the authority and had um, the influence and all the resources seemed to somehow skimp on distributing those resources well to the group that was less influential, less populous, uh, less available. And what's interesting is I think as this division begins to occur, the conflict hampers the spread of the gospel by dividing the church's attention and witness at a critical time in its life. Right? And I think that's partially, at least as I was hearing, Rachel, uh, the plea is we're thinking about how the Holy Spirit works in this catalytic moment for the church. If we're going to reach the next generation, whoever that is, and increase the mission field, how will those of us with authority and influence in the current structure begin to respond as new people begin to come in? And it's a critical moment, right? This is a time when the church could have shattered, when the witness to Jesus could have been eliminated, when um, it would have been demonstrated by the church's failure to serve together, live together, act together, and care for one another, that Jesus Christ wasn't big enough to overcome cultural differences among the same ethnic group of people, far less reach out beyond that. So what does the church do? The apostles, in coordination with the people, choose a group of people who are full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. And they point out the first person on that list is Stephen, a man described as a man full of faith and the Spirit. Why was it important if you're dealing with the distribution of food, something really mundane, right? A lot like closing a bank deal. I mean, complicated, but really a little organization could take care of it. Why would you need people filled with the Holy Spirit? Because I think the issue was much bigger. And when the church responds by listening to what the Holy Spirit is about to do and goes along with it and participates with it, the otherwise impossible conflicts and conundrums we face begin to open up. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of guidance. Jesus called him um, the parakletos, right? The one called alongside help, the advocate, 
the lawyer type for you, the one who comes alongside when you're really stuck and facing overwhelming odds and who says, I'm going to argue on your behalf. I'm going to come alongside you and provide you the wisdom that you need. I'm going to go walk with you along this path so that you know you are not doing it alone. Jesus, in his final sermon to the apostles, said, you know what? It's good for you that I'm leaving. It's better for you to have the Holy Spirit than for me to be present. Why? Because the Holy Spirit indwells each one of us. And rather than like, you know, if Jesus were here now, I'd be like, oh, Jesus is in Jerusalem again, but I have this big question, what am I going to do? And she says, it's never going to be a problem again. My spirit will dwell within you. You'll have me wherever you go, where, whatever situation you face. No matter what happens, I am there with you. So how does the spirit guide? How does the spirit encourage us? How does the spirit come alongside with us? Well, I really do believe that he continues to speak through visions, prophecies, and words of wisdom. I've seen too many occurrences in my life and in uh, the ministry that I work with to even doubt that that's the case. Um, at our national staff conference just this past January, we focused on the idea of what does it mean to be a renewing presence in the university. And at the last day, our president, Alec Hill, um, said in order for us to reach the entire university and to transform it, and he laid out two or three things three things that needed to happen. The third thing that he mentioned was some of you here in this room need to embrace the leadership call that God has placed on your life and invest in becoming leaders. Because what's holding us back is we have insufficient numbers of people who are willing to say, I have been gifted and called and commissioned by God to call the people on our fellowships and in our movement to a greater engagement with the university. And then he continued to roll on. He then gave us a time to prayer in order to respond to the commitments that we felt we needed to make. Um, a friend of mine, Joanne Acevedo. Now, Joanne's a classic case, right? Puerto Rican, so you kind of think uh, maybe some Pentecostal roots there, and it's true, but has a kind of Catholic background, Pentecostal background. As she was praying, two sentences came to her. And she, as she was thinking, like, what do these two sentences mean? She felt like God was saying, share them with Carrie and Nicole, who are sitting a row over. Joanne said, well, I have no idea what these mean. So she walked over to Carrie, whispered in her ear, and Carrie just burst into tears and started sobbing. And the way Nicole says it is, she said, I saw Joanne coming and I quailed because I knew she had a word for me. And then she stopped at Carrie right next to me and Carrie just started sobbing and I knew it was going to be bad. And <laughs> Joanne leaned over and said, I don't know why, but I feel like God is telling me to tell you this. And as soon as Nicole heard it, she started sobbing. And as I processed with them about 30 minutes later, she said, it was so clear the issues that I was wrestling with that God was answering them. And what Joanne said, she had no idea what those words meant, but it was very clear to me. God had put his finger on um, the problem of my sin and my um, rebellion against him around the issue of leadership, and I had to submit. And she said, but it was so gentle because I wasn't expecting it, and Joanne clearly had no idea what she was doing. But it was God's word to me. And it's completely changed the trajectory of their jobs over the last six months. Obviously, preeminently, right, I think the Holy Spirit speaks through the words of Scripture. That when we open up the text of Scripture, I believe God speaks. This is his word. It's the Holy Spirit's book written, and it's through Scripture that we critique any other word, any other vision, any other prophecy, any other dream. If it's not consistent with the words that he's already given us, we know that they're false. I think, frankly, right, the Holy Spirit continues to speak through the songs that we sing. 
wouldn't almost every one of us be able to testify that you hit a point in your life where all of a sudden you just felt stuck? And then a hymn that you sang at one point in your childhood, a song that you sung that past Sunday, sometime during worship, the worship organizer could not have predicted it, but that was the exact song you needed to sing that day. And as you sang those words and you engaged both mind and body and heart simultaneously, which is right why we sing, so that's a physical response to an intellectual and spiritual truth, all of a sudden God just resonated. I have to admit, for me, often when I'm meeting with staff or students, um, okay, I'll just confess, um, sometimes it's scripture. Um, it's pretty rarely songs. Up. For me, it's quotes from books. Uh, I'm a nerd. You all know that. You've known me long enough. Uh, and so is it really, and I used to disturb me, like, why do people get images or words of scripture? Why do I always go, hey, that reminds me of a quote from a Becky Pippert book. And all of a sudden I realized God's using the raw material in my life. I'm not a big visualizer. I don't have strong pictures of anything. I mean, ask my wife about trying to get me to think about anything regarding what the house should look like. Total blank. There's about a two-week window each year where I care what our house looks like. Usually in early August, it's the beginning of my year. I'm all excited. So this year I bought little knobs for a cabinet. Um, the, the other 11 and a half months, I just don't care. Like it just doesn't matter to me. I'm aesthetically numb. So that's why I don't get visions. Um, I probably need to study scripture more. Um, but I read a lot. And so I think God goes, well, I'll use the raw material I have. Because God isn't proud, right? And I think he shaped me this way, and so he uses what he has. I think, frankly, the Holy Spirit often speaks to our sanctified common sense. That I know a lot of students who are praying and listening to God, like, what should I do, what should I do? And anybody just watching their life, it's so obvious what they should do next. Right? I'm like, you don't even need to pray about this one. Just, I mean, it's so clear, stop doing that. But I think um, the early church chooses Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith, in order to lead this process. And why full of faith? Because I think the best definition of faith is people who respond to the Holy Spirit's initiative. It's not an emotional capacity of intensity of belief. It's not even pure intellectual assent. How do I know whether you have faith or not? It's not whether you can recite the creed to me or that you weep while you worship. I know you have faith when you do something. Do you trust God enough in what he says and commands that you actually respond to the Holy Spirit's guidance? And I think the great thing is the Holy Spirit empowers us to respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction, right? So in part, what I wonder is what level of expectation do we have when you open up the scriptures as you read through the suggested Bible passages that are given to you each Sunday? Is it, well, I, I feel like I should do this because it's a discipline? Or is there a sense of, I know God's going to speak. I know he's going to change me. I know He is equipping me and embedding truth in me that I'm going to need later. One of the reasons I love um, attending uh, churches with a wide variety of generations is I love watching the oldest people in the congregation. Um, and my, the church I grew up in, there were a whole bunch of 70-year-olds or 80-plus-year-olds, which seemed ancient to me then, and now it just seems uncomfortably close as it approaches. <laughs> but um, there, were, there was a, a small row of them where when the, when the pastor got up to the pulpit and began to read the scriptures, I loved watching their face. Because the, their face would, there would be this mix of hunger and excitement as the word was about to be spoken to them. And, and I'll confess, the pastor wasn't a good speaker. I, I could not make heads or tails of what he was saying. Now, some of it was because it was translated from another language. But he wasn't fantastic. But there was such an expectation that God was going to say something. 
And I thought, I want to go out like that. In my 70s or 80s, when I'm pretty confident I know what I need to know, to believe that God yet still has something new to say to me from this same text that was preached on the year before. Man, man, I want to live like that. And what's the result when this happens? If you drop down to verse 7 of chapter 6, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. What's the result? Unity in the church, conversion of the unsaved, and the discipleship of the untrained. Because the Holy Spirit, when he gives guidance, desires to build up the church of Jesus Christ. He builds fellowship as we love and serve one another. All seven names uh, chosen by the people of God to fix this problem between the Grecian Jews and the Hebraic Jews all had Grecian names. Somehow the church was able to go, all the power seems to rest with Hebraic Jews. The Grecian Jews aren't being taken care of. Let's let the Grecian Jews fix this problem and we'll do whatever they want. Do you see how all of a sudden you're called into a life that that's not the intuitive response we would have, but it's a God-given response to fix the problem of unity? He empowers evangelism as, our, as the people see our unity because love is really the final apologetic. Even the priests, the people who condemn Jesus to death are now coming to faith. It's not just the disaffected in the religion, it's the people who are most opposed to him who are coming to faith. And he develops real depth in the church as he equips us to work through hard issues. It's astounding. I think the Holy Spirit not only brings unity to the church, but as the line with the priest suggests, the Holy Spirit convicts people about the truth of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening in verses 8 through 15, right? Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs. Then opposition arose from the synagogue of the freedmen, Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. So it would be modern-day Turkey and North uh, Africa. And they begin to argue with Stephen, but the scripture says they couldn't um, stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So they began to um, confront him, and they brought false charges before him. They stirred people up. They seized Stephen, bring him before the Sanhedrin, and they say, we've heard this uh, man testify against Moses and against the law and against God. And it says in verse 15, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Here's the problem, right? It's not just that the church may not have unity, but the church faces a lot of challenges in its evangelism and local mission. Christianity wasn't very popular at the time. It was considered an aberrant sect of Judaism. It was way too exclusive for the Romans. What do you mean there's only one God and only one way to God? Give me a break. That's so intolerant. That's so narrow-minded. That's so imperialistic. It was incomprehensible to the Jew that a man who could die hanging on a cross could actually be the savior. Not that dissimilar, right, from the situations we face today. And the Holy Spirit then equips Stephen with miraculous gifts to witness to what Christ is doing. He gives him words to say which people couldn't respond to and demonstrates his uh, presence by doing things that people could not expect a normal human being to do. What's interesting to me is that the point of the spiritual gifts is in self-aggrandizement, right? Stephen doesn't start healing people and all of a sudden do, Stephen Ministries, I want all of you to come and watch me do miracles, right? He doesn't uh, create a slideshow where it's like, look at the freaky things that God is doing through me and draw attention to himself. He doesn't have a PR campaign to draw attention. When he preaches and when the signs come, he continues to point to Jesus. <laughs> because that's what the signs are about. They witness 
to the existence and the power, not of the gift receiver, but of the gift giver. The Spirit equips Stephen with miraculous gifts to witness to Christ, gives him words to say which people can't respond to, and demonstrates his presence. He gives Stephen words to say which people couldn't respond to because this is exactly what Jesus promised would happen, right? You'll, get, you'll be drawn up before kings and assemblies and groups of people. I'll give you the words you need to say at the time you need them. Don't worry. How does the Holy Spirit do this? I want to suggest it's that expectation that God is going to speak through Scripture, isn't it? When you allow the truths of Scripture to be embedded in your heart, you have the words you need to say at the times you need to say them. The advocate, Jesus said, will teach you everything that you need to know. I think in part that's why I love using Scripture in evangelism. There are a lot of philosophical arguments why people should come to know Jesus. There are a lot of practical reasons they should want to come to know Jesus. I love having them hear the words of Jesus and then respond to him because I think when we use the Holy Spirit's words to engage in the Holy Spirit's work, we see the Holy Spirit's power. We're using his words in evangelism. He inspired these words of Scripture, and we can't understand Scripture without him speaking and illuminating our hearts. So it's perfect. It works together. It's one of the reasons in, in our varsity's evangelistic um, attempts, we've really committed ourselves to groups investigating God. They're Bible studies that we do with non-Christians. Now, I know a lot of Christians think, you're joking, right? You're going to invite non-Christians to a Bible study? I mean, it takes me some effort to get to Bible study. Why would non-Christians do it? But what we often go to do is work with non-Christian students to say, hey, you're interested in Jesus. Would you give me, uh, would you meet with me for four weeks? We'll spend an hour each week looking at what Jesus says about himself. And what we find is, um, I can describe Jesus in pretty compelling ways. When you see Jesus, he's compelling all of his own. He doesn't need me to sell him. He doesn't need me to convince you about him. Jesus is powerful and convincing on his own. And the great thing I think about believing that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of evangelism, of mission, of local outreach, is that in the end, don't we believe it's the Holy Spirit that convicts you of sin? Right? There's nothing more frustrating than going to a non-Christian and trying to convince them they're bad. I mean, it's like a losing proposition. You seem happy, you aren't. How do you know? You seem like a nice person, but you really aren't. I mean, like, let me attack you, demean you, and make you feel bad about yourself, and then show you the good news. That's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to tell them the truth about what God is. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convert. It means we have all of the joy of participating with God with none of the pressure of needing the results. It's God's job. So when we engage in evangelism, we go forth with great boldness, preaching openly and wildly, because in the end, it's going to be God's job to convict and, uh, and to convert. We just have to be faithful in doing what he calls us to do. And so it doesn't, there's no pressure behind it. There's instead joy. We just saw that this last week. We're in the middle of a 40-day prayer campaign for InterVarsity here in New York and New Jersey. And we've been praying that 40 students will come to faith uh, in the first 40 days of the year. And so far, there have been 18 students who've come to faith in the last three weeks. And four students came to faith at Nassau Community College. And the way it happened was this. It was their first large group meeting. And they invited the student leaders, each one, to share something about how they wanted to see God transform their life and their world. And the staff worker relates the story this way. He said, the first testimony was fantastic. The second testimony built on that one was even better. The third testimony was astounding. And he said, as I listened to them, I realized they were giving my entire talk for me, very legitimately just sharing, this is what I want to see God do in my life and among my friends. And he said, by the time we got to the fifth person, it was clear 
the entire vision had been cast. There was nothing left to say, and I still had to go up and talk. So he listened to God. He invited the Holy Spirit to speak, and he felt that he was supposed to abandon the talk that he'd prepared about InterVarsity's vision and build on what was already said, share a short word on the parable of uh, the prodigal son, or as I prefer to think of it, because it works better that way in Scripture, the parable of the searching father. And so Alec got up and he said, well, do his talk away. I'd like to share from, uh, a short story from you, to you, from Luke 15. And he shared the story of the searching father, right? <clears throat> Preceding that, it's a man had 100 lost sheep. One of them gets lost. He goes to find it. And then it's one woman loses one of 10 lost coins, so she goes to find it. And then Alec begins to tell the story of a man who has two sons, one of who goes a long way away to get lost and one who's lost right next to him. And how both times the father walks out of the house, runs to the first son who finally comes home from a long way away and says, before you can even apologize, you need to know I love you, I've already forgiven you, and I'm glad you're home. You were dead and now you're alive. You were lost and now you're found. Come in and be my son once again. And to the son who was always there, but really distant in his heart, when he won't come in to celebrate with his younger brother, the father leaves his house one more time and says, come home. Everything I have is yours. I've always loved you. Don't doubt that. Come home and celebrate with me. And Alex said, I preached that message, and I said, if any of you want to come home, this is your chance. Come home. The father's come out of his house in the person of Jesus Christ, and he wants to see you. And he said, four students stood up and said, I want to become followers of Jesus. <clears throat> Do you see how the Holy Spirit works? He knits together five other testimonies so that there's unity in the church. He gives somebody words to speak, and then he does the process of convicting and converting. It's a fabulous thing. It's the spirit who moves our heart to cry out, Abba. It's the spirit that convicts us of truth. And that's why in the end, as we begin to reach out beyond our own walls, the Holy Spirit will always invite us to pray. Because uh, we, pray not, we pray that we'll listen to the way the Holy Spirit leads us, we'll listen for the words that he gives us and that we invite the Holy Spirit to do the work that we need to see around us. The Holy Spirit builds unity in the church. He builds conviction as we speak the words of truth. And then finally, and I think really critically for us, the Holy Spirit changes us into the people of Christ. And that last line in verse six, uh, chapter 6 is, All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently in Stephen, and they saw his face was like the face of an angel, that he was being transformed. And I think that's partially why Anne suggested we might want to think about as a congregation is one of the ways we respond uh, to Irene, investing in a neighborhood that's not our own, helping people who are not our own for the sake of Jesus, because that's what people, that would be an unexpected response in a world that largely is concerned about ourselves. Stephen speaks this incredibly long, um, very complex, somewhat convoluted speech to the Sanhedrin. I want to look at how he dies as a way of looking more intently at how the Spirit changes us into the people of Christ. As we talk about building unity in the church, making that turn in the road, speaking uh, words of truth, when I'm honest as I prepare and as I think about these texts, um, it makes me feel inadequate. I don't know about you, but 50% um, of the time maybe I help with unity in the church. The other 50% of the time I wonder if I'm part of the problem. Um, I can teach people to do evangelism. I'm not so skilled when it comes to initiating conversation, particularly with strangers. 
uh, or people I don't know well. I'm an introvert. I barely like talking to the people I enjoy, much less talking to new people. Um, I'm so much more aware of my sin the longer I walk with Jesus, and I am more discouraged by my lack of progress every year I go in many ways. And I don't know about you, but I suspect those of us who've journeyed with Christ a long time, right? Like people, you would think it would be easier 20 or 30 or 40 years in. And if anything, the reality of sin just seems so much more apparent to me. So we're pretty inadequate. The great thing, the hopeful thing, the true thing is that it's not about you. It's the Holy Spirit that's converting you and transforming you into Christ-likeness. Look again at Stephen's life, right? As he's preaching, his face shines like the face of an angel. And they're enraged by his message. They drag him out to be stoned to death. And I want to look at just the last two verses that we read from the end of chapter 7. As they were stoning him, Stephen prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, having been accused before the Jewish leadership, dies saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And into your hands I commit my spirit. Heard words like that before? Isn't it amazing? Right? They're the words of Jesus. I don't think he was just memorizing scripture and using it. I think Stephen had been so shaped by the Holy Spirit into Christ-likeness that it became the obvious and natural and true thing for him when the end of his life approached to approach his life like Jesus approached the end of his life. I think it was a natural. He was like, oh, what scripture memory verse? Oh, I mean, hit my stones. What should I think of now? Right? It was... I look, I am becoming like Jesus, so the things that Jesus did, I begin to do naturally. Father, forgive these people. They don't understand. And I give myself to you. You're trustworthy. I'm dying in this bad way, but you are trustworthy. I have no doubt. I lived and I will die like my Savior lived and died. Right? When the Holy Spirit is working among us, it's not just so that we're busier in building the unity and depth of the church or reaching out beyond ourselves, but literally we begin to be marked by the fruit of the Spirit. And we begin to look more like Jesus. Because isn't the fruit of the Spirit a great descriptor of what Jesus is like? We experience love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. But the very attributes of God begin to dwell within us. And that without having to go through the what would Jesus do and run through this list, instinctively he begins to move our hearts to do the things that Jesus would have us do. And that spiritual, I like to think of the Holy Spirit as kind of like a spiritual virus, and that he's begun to infect ourselves with this entirely new spiritual DNA that begins to replicate itself in our body so that even though physically uh, we haven't changed very much, in every other part of our personality, that DNA begins to breed true. And we begin to look more and more like Jesus. And as we begin to look more and more like Jesus, we begin to draw together into a new body together. So that literally when people see the church, they say, I see Jesus. And I think the testimonies that we shared here uh, this morning point that out, right? That when people encounter radical welcome, they begin to experience what Jesus was like, welcoming people who didn't think they would ever find a home. 
when we're perplexed and confused, our response is not to worry and obsess, but instead to pray and invite God to work and to see his power then to testify to him because that's what Jesus did when confronted by problems. I turned to the Father. I knew what I needed to do. I went to Gethsemane. I proclaimed the goodness of God. Right? Over and over again, we become the people who look and do the things that Jesus did. And it no longer becomes a discipline. It becomes natural to us. And all the spiritual disciplines that come alongside to give us practice in doing those things that the Holy Spirit continues to invite us to do more and more naturally. We worship a trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a God who provides, a God who saves, and a God who enacts, empowers, indwells, and transforms. He's our counselor. He's the one who convicts the world of the truth, and he's the one who invites us and makes us into Christ-likeness. And that's why I think, I suspect, the Catalyst team said we need to refocus again on what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit as a church and to be open to the move of the Spirit. What do we need at a time when we're about to make a turn? The Holy Spirit to bind us together, to sacrifice on behalf of one another and those who have not yet heard so that more people come to faith. What do we need for more people to come to faith? For the Holy Spirit to give us the words and the character and the conviction to speak so that he has the opening to begin to transform lives around us. And it will be his job to do it and our job to celebrate that God swept us up in his purposes and said, look, you did it with me, right? It's a lot like when my daughter tries to cook with me. It's never necessarily an aid to me. It doesn't help me get the job done. But boy, does she think she made a difference in stirring that oatmeal this morning. And man, did I have a great time doing it with her. And then God says, do it with me. And as we do so, we as a congregation will look more and more like Jesus. That's part of the adventure that we're going on as a church together over the next couple of months. As we make that turn, as the Catholic, Catholic team moves us across, that's part of what we're praying about, I trust, as you think about the retreat coming up next Saturday. Not just that they come up with great plans, not just that they're thoughtful, but that the Holy Spirit moves in such a way that unity is built up of the church that he gives us power to speak, and that we look like Christ. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I'm grateful for my brothers and sisters here uh, at Community Bible Church, and I'm excited about how they're inviting you to be at work. So Holy Spirit, take them up on their prayer. Move among us in a new way. Not so that we would merely do new things, but we would become the people that you desire us to be. That we would do the things that you desire us to do. And that through that we see Jesus more clearly. To you be the honor and glory forever. Amen.